This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On this week's episode, I'll be talking about the crisis unfolding inside British museums, the protests in China, and a handy loophole in the plans to extend London's ultra-low emissions zone. First up, in his cover piece, Douglas Murray says that museums are turning against their own collections. He joins me now alongside the historian Professor Robert Toombs. Douglas, could you tell our listeners a little bit about this culture of self-flagellation that you write about in your piece? Yes, this is provoked by a visit to a number of British collections recently, including national collections, which show an extraordinary degree of what would you describe as other than sort of self-loathing, a desire for self-annihilation, that instead of defending the collection, the job of the curators is to shut it down. I give the example of the Pitt Rivers collection in Oxford, which has always been a most curious collection, but now it's exceptionally curious. It used to be a curiosity of a bygone age, and now it's a curiosity of the present age. It has special exhibits about beyond the binary, Uh, The bookshop sells A to Z of genders. The display explains how white Europeans are a race of colonialists and really nothing else, uh, how uh, Europeans have just thieved their way around the world. And as I say in the piece, this isn't unusual. Go to the Tate Britain, for instance, which holds some of the jewels of the British collections, and uh, you'll see that not only has the gallery decided to stand as judge, jury, and executioner over Rex Whistler, but also over Stanley Spencer and multiple other artists, who they've decided their job is not to sort of preserve the legacy of, but in fact to insult, to defame. And this direction, as I say, comes from the top. It is no less an organisation than the, than the, than the uh, Museums Association, which has offered professional guidance in recent years to curators to effectively learn new ways to insult and eventually shut down their collections. And Robert, I wonder what your take on this is, and, and, and particularly Douglas's comment just then that this comes from the top. You know, a lot of the views getting time in these collections now, they've always been there in academia, but I suppose the interesting thing is now it's no longer a sort of fringe academic opinion, that they are as Douglas says, coming to the collections from the top down. And, and so how did that happen? Do they come from the top down? I think they come from the inside out. And perhaps we're saying the same thing. I've never quite understood why people who are employed by institutions should claim a right to decide what those institutions do. I mean, they're there to earn a living. And you, you don't expect the, the cashier at Tesco to tell you whether or not you can buy a packet of cornflakes. And I don't <laughs> see why people who are employed by museums or art galleries or indeed other cultural institutions should should be guiding the policy of those institutions. And the thing that, that most, I suppose, most alarms me, because I'm, in a way, we've all got used to, you know, idi- idi- idiotic and arrogant pronouncements, um, whether in the, in the press or in the captions on, on exhibitions and so on. It's that the trustees of these institutions seem to have either completely capitulated or to actually encourage this kind of, this nihilism. And I just cannot understand what these trustees think they have been entrusted with. 
you know, you mm. accept a trustee position out of a sense of public duty, what one hopes, perhaps occasionally a certain amount of vanity about one's self-importance. But at least one ought to be there to maintain and protect the thing which has been entrusted to one's care and not to decide to treat this as if it's one's own personal property, which can be disposed of or closed down or altered in the way that you or indeed the employees of the institution decide that they want. I mean, who, are the, who are the real stakeholders here? It seems to me it's not the trustees, it's not the employees, it's the members of the public and also those who provide funding, who are often the taxpayer. And I think the way that, that, that institutions have got away with behaving in this arrogant manner is pretty shocking. Uh, Douglas, Robert there described it as a kind of ni- uh, nihilism, or, or should I say nihilism, uh, uh, as a kind of nihilism. Could it also be argued, though, that, that there's almost a sort of slightly, there's an ideological zeal that, I mean, it reminds me almost a bit like the Reformation of a kind of uh, t- tearing down icons and idolatrous images and the rest of it, which, which isn't exactly nihilism. That's more of a, um, a kind of misguided sense of, of, of moralism, isn't it? I give you a tip, Will. In this area, you're going to have to learn how to pronounce the word nihilism because you're going to need it a lot. (laughs) It is a sort of sense of not only nihilism, but also, yes, as you say, a sort of sense of a desire to prove, for vain reasons mainly, one's own moral superiority to the past. You see, there's this great idiocy that exists in our day, which is the idea that because we live after the past and know how the past went, we are better than everyone in the past. And this comes to a logical endpoint, or an illogical endpoint, you might say, (laughs) which is what has just been announced this week by the Wellcome Trust, the Wellcome Museum on the Euston Road in London. Uh, Last weekend, the museum announced that it was going to close its exhibition. It had tried desperately to do everything that the modern curator can do. It had put up uh, signs commissioned by anti-racists and anti-colonialists, insulting Welcome himself, uh, insulting the collection, uh, but that hadn't proved enough. In the end, a social media account of the Welcome collection said, we can't defend ourselves. We don't think that this should exist, effectively, and so we're going to close. Because 19th century wealth and power had been used to put this collection together, and in the 21st century, they could find no reason to keep it together. And as Robert says, that goes back to this fundamental thing. Who do you think you are? And (laughs) what do you think your job is? And in the case of the people at the Wellcome Museum, the answer was, we think we are the judge, juror and executioner of the past, and therefore the judge, juror and executioner of the collection, which was initially put into our hands to care for. Robert, as a historian, I want to ask ask you a little bit further about this in in the sense that could it not be argued that part of the role of a historian or a museum creator is to constantly reassess and recontextualize the past and could it not be argued that that is simply what is happening inside these museums? I'm sure the people doing it would argue that but I think it's much more than recontextualizing which implies that there are new things that we're discovering I think in this case, it's not, it's not, this is not a process of research or of understanding. It's a process of condemnation. It, it's almost the opposite of understanding. It's a refusal to understand or appreciate that people in the past thought differently and, and behaved differently from the way in which we do. The assumption is that it was worse, 
And as, as Douglas said, there's no reason to believe that our ancestors or, or other people's ancestors were somehow a, a less morally enlightened than we are. I think often the contrary is true. But this is not, this is a closing down of culture. That's why I think we both called it nihilism. It's not an attempt as, you know, let's say that the, the Reformation was to get back to a purer and better form of culture. It's, it seems to be a desire to destroy culture and replace it with nothing. And I would add one thing to that, if I may, Will, which is if it was the case that we are approaching these collections in a different light, fine. The problem is, is that it is always recontextualized in exactly the same light. (laughs) The remorseless, unforgiving light of a focus on Western slavery, Western colonialism, Western racism. I was very struck at the Pitt Rivers Museum this week when I was there, that there is, of course, a significant collection of artifacts from Benin. Despite the fact that if you go through the whole of the Pitt Rivers collection, you cannot find a single time when colonialism of the Europeans is not mentioned or slavery of the Europeans is not mentioned. I stand before the explanations about the kingdom of Benin. And do I say, do I see anything about the rampant practice of slavery in the kingdom of Benin? Not at all. Do I see that it was going on long after the British ended slavery? Not at all. Do I see anything about racism or hierarchies in the kingdom of Benin? Not at all. So if we are going to recontextualize, let's do it on a lot of things. Let's not just do it by insulting, assaulting, and shutting down anything tarred by the connection with that worst of all people, the dead white male. Yes. Well, on the subject of Benin, there's, we saw the news this week that some of uh, Benin artifacts have been, have been returned to Nigeria. Uh, there's, there's calls, of course, always to return more. There's calls to return Elgin marbles to, to Greece. Do you think if, if creators and collections continue could we possibly be seeing the end of the so-called world museums if, if, if it is somehow an offence for us to even have these things in our collections in the first place? Well, my own view is that, it, of course, I mean, everyone says you get all slippery slope on this. But, of course, the slippery slope is a well-known argument for very good reason, which is that the slope is often very slippery. Start to give bad art, back artefacts, and it's very hard to know where to stop. The case of Benin is particularly interesting, by the way, because in some cases, and I mentioned this, sorry to make a shameless book plug, but I mentioned this <laughs> in my last book, The War on the West, the desire to start giving things up reached such a crescendo at one point after the summer of George Floyd that Lambeth Palace gave back two bronzes from Benin, which it said it just couldn't have on its hands. It treated them as if they were holding looted artifacts. It took somebody outside of Lambeth Palace to point out that the two bronzes in question were given to Archbishop Ronald Runcie, who, as it happened, confirmed me in the 1980s. So this was a gift to the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 1980s, which in the 2020s, his successors handed back like stolen goods, like they were trying to get a a set of hot televisions off their hands. Um, That's what happens. The Benin bronzes are are a wonderful example. The Pitt Rivers Museum has been leading the way in this. But there is a, a group in America, this has been reported a bit in the press, but it seems to me a wonderful example of the moral let's say, ambivalence, to put it kindly, of this whole issue, is that there is a a group of descendants of former slaves, many of whom were taken from 
what's now Nigeria, many of them sold by the former rulers of Benin, and whose, whose descendants now live in America and Britain, and who have been campaigning against the return of the Benin bronzes to Benin, because this means rewarding the slave traders, who, was, who got the metal to, me, to have these things made by selling their, their people, by selling people to traders. And therefore, the moral case that these people are making, which seems to me unanswerable, is that they should be kept in the museums where they are, where everyone can see them, and not sent back to Nigeria, where, at least on past on the past record of those keeping them, they are not very likely to last very long. You, you probably know this. It's really a rather amusing story in a way. When Nigeria became independent, it inherited quite a large collection of these bronzes, some of which had been donated by the British Museum, and many of them seemed to have disappeared. And one of them was given to the Queen, by the late Queen, by General Goan, who was then dictator of Nigeria, who went and pinched it from the museum to bring it along as a present to the Queen. <laughs> so with, with the Royal Collection now contains, as it were, a doubly looted object taken by the British from Benin, presumably in 1897, given back to the Nigerians at the time of their independence, removed again by the Nigerian government and given to the Queen. So it's a, it's a tangled story. Thank you, Douglas and Robert. Next, for the magazine, The Spectator's Cindy Yu writes about how the tune is changing in China. She joins me now with Professor Kerry Brown, director of the Lao China Institute at King's College London. Cindy, could you start by giving us your reaction to the protests this week? Yeah, it's... I mean, my first reaction is to be very depressed. <laughs> it's a mixed reaction, but my first reaction is to be very depressed because I'm deeply cynical and sceptical that anything is going to change, even as something changes with the zero-COVID regime that these protesters are largely protesting against so that their lives are made better under the pandemic anyway. The fundamental problem is that they have no recourse to have their voices heard if they disagree with this policy or anything else that the Chinese Communist Party does. And I think we saw that plenty clearly during the Shanghai lockdown, where no amount of wealth or education could save the Shanghainese from the brutal hand of the state when it wanted to lock down. And so it's just that lack of recourse and, and these young people calling out for their voices to be heard was very depressing to me. But at the same time, it was also very inspiring mm. in their bravery, in their passion, but also in their humour as well. In my piece, I talk about how one protester led a trio of alpacas through Shanghai. And the reason for that is that alpacas have become a protest meme because alpacas are said to resemble the mythical grass mud horse, which in Chinese means tani ma, and in English is something you may not want to... Um, I mean, it's a sexual act involving your mother, one's mother. Sure. Um, <laughs> um, and so, you know, it has, it has become a protest meme against the government. So, so it, yeah, it's inspiring and also depressing, and I, I just hope that they get heard. You talked about the, the, the bravery of the people who are protesting. So for listeners who may not be aware... The people who are seen to be protesting these events, you know, who are caught on camera doing so or, or, or arrested and have it on their record and so on. Is that something which could hang over them for, for years and years in the living in the Chinese I think we'll uh, have communist to wait, regime? We'll have to wait and see, basically, because often these people were there for about half an hour, an hour, passing by or joining in, not for long. And really, the protests happened for two nights and they haven't really been able to happen since Sunday night. And so we'll have to wait and see. I know some of them have already been kind of arrested. I think some of those being arrested have already been released, but just this warning. And some of the students who were troublemaking have been sent home early on winter break because they were in their university towns. So I think for now, 
I mean, I'd be interested in what Kerry has to say about this, but I think for now it seems like the government is willing to take a relatively light hand in order to not escalate the situation because mm. it was such an outburst and such a brief outburst. But compared to something like the 1989 protest right. in Tiananmen Square, that was weeks long of campaign, real student leaders, organisation, slogans, banners, all that kind of stuff. So it's slightly different. So Kerry, to bring you in, Cindy mentioned there the idea about escalation and comparisons with Tiananmen Square in 1989. I wonder if you could give your view to our listeners about where these protests have come from and whether you think the comparisons to Tiananmen Square are fair comparisons. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, as Cindy said, the frustrations are very high. People are very, very fed up and it's gone on too long, three years. That's a long, long time for people to be living in uncertainty. I mean, look, China has never had a national lockdown the way that we had. It's been more of a sort of blitzkrieg thing where there are different regions that have had different variants. And some of these have been pretty draconian. Xinjiang was over 100 days. That's pretty appalling. Shanghai was pretty brutal, too. So I think in some places, populations that are not used to being dealt with this way have had too much tough love and just don't want any of it anymore. I don't think that there's a parallel with 1989 because I think that 1989 was over several months. It was an elite split between people around the hardliners and Deng Xiaoping and then Zhao Ziyang. We don't have an elite split around Xi Jinping at the moment, and it doesn't look likely at the moment. And also because of the international environment, where you had the fall of the Berlin Wall, or at least the build-up to that. And that's not the case this time. I mean, it's a very different situation. The problem is that, of course, a lot of footage of the protest showed people making political declarations. I don't deny that there are people who probably deeply dislike the government that they live under in China, But I suspect a lot more are just very fed up with the economic and social impact of the lockdowns they've lived under and have somewhat more prosaic aims. And I think although the liberal press in the rest of the world loves to look at protests and see the shining, gleaming liberal values come smashing through the wall, I think that's just not the case here. Xi Jinping's China is more complicated And I think they've already started to deal with these issues probably quite effectively. Their big problem is if there's going to be a big spike and then they have got another problem. How are those issues dealt with, if they're dealt with effectively? Uh, I think they've relaxed some of the restrictions. So they've let students go home from universities in Beijing. So that's taken the wind out of their sails. They've relaxed some of the restrictions in Xinjiang. They have, as you saw probably today in Guangdong, they've had relaxations There are rumours maybe of clampdowns again in Shanghai. They've done the classic thing of control and relax. So basically control the ringleaders, but relax things a little bit and have, uh, I think it's a vice premier, I think she is Sun Chunlan, Mm. saying actually the Omicron variant is not so infectious. Relax everyone, we can be a bit more kind of relaxed about this. Mm. Well, Cindy, just to get back to to what you say in your piece, and you, you write, I think, very movingly about, to use a horrible cliche, the sort of journey you've been on in terms of your view of the Chinese Communist Party and how it relates to your country and, and your own identity. And you write that in your childhood growing up in Nanjing, that you were a proud member of the Chinese Communist Youth League and, and that since then your, your views have evolved. And 
And I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit about that process mm. and how you've come to the conclusion you've come to and, and how gradual that process has been. And I suppose what I'm asking really is how much was the, the events of this year mm. with zero COVID and the, the suppression of protesters over zero COVID, how much that was a sort of sudden split or how much of a gradual process it's been? I think it's been really, really gradual. And to anyone who's not kind of gone through it, it might just sound ludicrous because people in the UK are now listening might think, of course, democracy is good. Of course, that's completely obvious. But actually, I don't I don't think it was obvious to me for a long time. And I, I actually don't know if it is obvious to me now in the context of China, but that's for a separate <laughs> podcast. But my journey you describe, I mean, I think it's worth clearing up that First of all, I was a young pioneer of the Communist Youth League, but automatically. It was automatic right. membership. I didn't at the age of three kind of <laughs> stamp. As, yeah. I was taught in a very traditional Chinese school, you know, communist songs, national anthem, very proud to be Chinese. Could see my family and friends getting richer and richer and hear their stories about the starvation and the cold and hunger that they went through when they were young. And I could see that that wasn't me. Leaving the country, I think the the first time I, I, I mean, obviously it's a gradual process, but but one moment I remember very clearly was going to Hong Kong University and seeing the Pillar of Shame, which is this awful garish orange structure, but it's meant to be garish. Mm. And it's basically screaming it's faces. meant to capture your attention. Is that- screaming oh. faces melded into each other uh, next to a democracy wall of post-it notes of anti-government and also free speech messages from the Hong Kong University students replicating what happened in Beijing in the 1970s. And that was the first time I saw in the Chinese language, I think, properly so in the Chinese language, messages critical of the government. And I think that that really made a difference rather than just seeing it in English. I'm yeah. not sure why, but it, it really did. And so I think from that moment on, you know, it was that was a very clear moment. And I think, you know, obviously my line of work, you, you study China much more than you would if you were inside China hmm. oftentimes. Yeah. And this year's Shanghai lockdown really kind of sealed the deal for me. I mean, as Kerry says, this is a population that's not used to this kind of treatment. As mm. Kerry says, you know, in, in China, <laughs> the, there's a very sizable minority of people who have already always been oppressed by the government. But I think the majority was willing to overlook that in exchange for this kind of what mm. I call social contract in my piece, the, the better lives that were happening in return for not having your political rights. And you can overlook the ugly bits around the edges. But I think the Shanghai lockdown really showed people that actually, you can't rely on a benevolent dictatorship because there's no guarantee that it's going to be benevolent forever. <laughs> right. And when it turns, the point of it being a dictatorship is that you have no recourse whatsoever. And so so that 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 makes me, you know, now when I listen, hear the national anthem, I feel quite bittersweet. I feel like I'm grieving for this mm. vision of China I had bought into that I thought the direction that it was going into. And I'm hoping it's still going that direction, but it doesn't look like it at the moment. Well, Kerry, I wonder what you make of the idea that the direction that China was going into has perhaps um, changed in perhaps in recent years. And, and this idea of the social contract that Cindy spoke about just now and writes about in her column, the social contract between the people and the CCP has been broken and that it's no longer true that in return for unchallenged power, the people would see their lives become materially better. Do you think that is true? Yeah, I mean, one of the issues about these protests is the Congress last month where Xi Jinping got a third term. On the first day of that, he made a report, a work report. And there were two things, I guess, which were relevant for the protests. One is about having people-centered policy. 
and the other was about efficiency of government and delivery of government services. And you can see why people would be deeply irritated when they don't see people-centred policy and they definitely don't see efficiency or they see efficiency in the wrong place. Now in Zhejiang, in Hangzhou, which, which is next to Jiangsu and Nanjing, where, where um, Cindy just referred to, there was an interesting, I think a health bureau a couple of days ago put out a kind of document which did validate the protesters' demands that there should be people-centred policy and it should not be, you know, kind of cooping people up and seem to be anything but people-centred. So I think, you know, the government, Xi Jinping, that the, the problem, the specific problem is not these protests are against their legitimacy. I mean, I think people in China would know that is a high-risk thing to do, to contest the legitimacy. It is, however, within the tradition of righteous protest, which is saying, you promise these things and you're not delivering them. I think what we're going to see is an attempt to very obviously deliver, deliver, deliver. Uh, we know in Britain, when politicians talk about it being all about delivery, you've got to be very, very nervous because I think people are going to expect too much now. Thank you, Cindy and Kerry. Finally, in the magazine this week, Nicholas Lezard writes about how to beat London's ultra-low emissions zone. He joins me now with The Spectator's Tanya Gold. Nick, could you start by telling our listeners about this rather ingenious loophole that you have found? If your car is over 40 years old, it's exempt not only from road tax, it's exempt from the ultra-low emissions zone charge, which... It's incredible, really, when you think about it, because these are the, you know, the tanky old bangers that are emitting the most. Yeah. And uh, you say that you have not yourself owned, owned a car for some time. Has this rather elegant loophole made you reconsider that? Well, I can't even afford a pair of roller skates, so this would be purely <laughs> hypothetical. But it would be nice, you know, in an ideal world, I'd have some a lovely old car and just drive it around looking cool, even if I didn't have to go anywhere. Tanya, what do you make of Nick's discovery of this loophole? Would London be a, a better city if it were filled with vintage minis and, and, and E-type Jaguars? I love this fantasy from 19, 1940. It's a wonderful fantasy, but there are um, two issues with these cars. The first is they're not safe. And the second is how much it costs to keep them on the road. Now, I'm going to tell you a story about a classic car that I borrowed that was for review, that was delivered down in, uh, to me in Cornwall. And I, I'm not going to name the car because I don't want to get sued, but I can assure the listeners that it is true. And on the way back to London, this car that I was almost too terrified to drive, you had to almost lie down to get to, get to the clutch. And getting into second, it was impossible. You were almost lying down in, in, in this car and, and, it, and it was completely open, open to the elements. And on the way back to London, the delivery driver crashed it. <laughs> you know, he crashed it and, and it was such a beautiful car that a photograph of it was circulating on social media, all crumbled up, whoever had salvaged it. And I looked at it and I thought, oh my God, he's dead. Oh God. You know, the, the, you know, the, the posh young delivery driver is, is dead. I was being ignored cordially by him only, only yesterday. And, and in fact, he wasn't dead. And I, and I rang him in hospital and the PR didn't want to tell me whether he was dead or not because they didn't think it was oh very, very good for the brand. But, you know, they're very beautiful, these cars. But if you hit something... 
And I believe he was only going at about 50 miles an hour. And he said weather conditions was what he said. But the truth is, is these cars aren't safe. And the other thing is, love these beautiful, beautiful cars as much as I do. Well, actually, I don't because I don't think they're safe. And also, the other thing I want to say to the reader, sorry, the listener, is if you think you want a classic car, step into a brand new Aston Martin DB11 Volante. But the other thing I want to say is they cost an absolute fortune to keep on the road. They cost so much to keep on the road that you might as well buy yourself an electric Audi. I know, I know. But, um, and they fall apart. I did have an L registration rover, but when the L was at the end of the registration plate, a P6, uh, it was a 2000, I would drive that around. That was my, that was my first proper car, uh, which I'd inherited from my dad. And, but it just, it, it kept going on the whole time. Eventually it was sold for £35 because apparently the floor was just going to drop out. I then, 10 years later, I saw the exact same car still being driven around Notting Hill Gate. <laughs> and I was enraged. I could have been driving that car all this time. I wonder, Nick, why, why do you think that vintage cars have been made exempt from, from the ultra-low emissions zone? I mean, you can see the logic of some of the other exemptions, you know, cranes and <laughs> tractors, and not those many tractors in cities. But, but why, why have vintage cars, do you think, been given this exemption, given that they're probably going to be some of the most polluting of, of vehicles out there? Well, I think part of me thinks it's a, part, you know, it's a sign of the, the dotty affection for these cars that we have right up to the highest level of the Department of Transport. And other, otherwise, I think there is something slightly green about them insofar as you're not making another car. It's sort of like, well, well it's not quite recycling. It's not quite cycling. But if you see what I mean, you're not, you, know, you don't need a factory to build a vintage car because it's already built. I hope there is some joined up thinking because I, don't, I wouldn't like this exemption to go. Tanya, what do you think? Do you think it is just a nostalgia for, for vintage cars that's keeping them exempt? Or, or do you think Nick's right there is a sort of eco case that could be made, that as long as you're keeping these old cars together, you're not making new ones? I will never pretend to know what's inside a politician's mind, let alone a council member's mind. My, my assumption is there are probably just far fewer of them. Hmm. But one thing I do think is interesting about these these love of these these Mr. Toad cars is I wonder whether it's it's another sort of a gentrification of the past. Like you go to Shoreditch and and people are like, look, real carrots with 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 real mud on <laughs> them, and and, um, and 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 you go to all parts of London and 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 then there's a sort of building a sort of plasticky plasticky version of of the past. And I wonder whether these cars are part a part of the, of the same longing to go backwards. In which I say, I mean, I'm a bit of a luddite about this. I mean, everyone. You know, I'm quite left-wing for the spectators, so everyone thinks I'm an imbecile. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I wouldn't mind moving... I wouldn't mind horse horse and carts. I mean, I live in Cornwall. I mean, I, I always wonder why, why, we don't have, why we don't have sailing ships. So, Tanya, finally... So you, I know I didn't really answer the question. That's all right. <laughs> but, but, I don't know. But, Tanya, fi- finally, um, just yeah. because you earlier you, you were quite negative on a lot of vintage cars, particularly their, well, particularly negative, their, particularly their safety... Dangerous. and the, yeah. yeah, they're dangerous. So... so, so Hand on heart, with all honesty, if would you ever own one? No, I want no. an Aston Martin DB11 Volante. <laughs> and if I can't have that, I want a, a Bentley GT. I, I don't want a car that's eighty years old. I, I, I you know, I, I don't want a, I don't want a computer that's eighty that's eighty years old. I want a new one. Thank you, Nick and Tanya. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of The Spectator to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore, and I do hope you'll join me next week. 